Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. In their written form, Walt, fairy tales are supposedly only for children. But when you bring one to the screen, it captivates everyone. Age, language, race make no difference. What's the secret? Well, here's half an answer. Over at our place, we're sure of just one thing. Everybody in the world was once a child. We grow up, our personalities change. But in every one of us, something remains of our childhood. You mean that's a common denominator? That just about sums it up, Mr. DeMille. The same level you speak of knows nothing of sophistication and distinction. It's where all of us are simple and naive, without prejudice and bias. We're friendly and trusting. And it just seems to me that if your picture hits that spot in one person, it's going to hit that same spot in almost everybody. So in planning a new picture, we don't think of grown-ups and we don't think of children, but just of that fine, clean, unspoiled spot down deep in every one of us that maybe the world has made us forget and that maybe our pictures can help recall. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. We'll be exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. In our first two episodes, we looked at five of the early Disney shorts, all of which were important landmarks in the evolution of the studio and the art form. In this episode, we're finally starting our journey through the Disney animated features, beginning with the very first, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. In each episode of Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by Melbourne-based theatre maker Emma Valente. Emma is a director and lighting designer and co-artistic director of award-winning company The Rabble. The company was formed in 2006 by Emma and co-artistic director Kate Davis from a desire to make work that wasn't being produced in Australia. Visually ambitious, political, feminist and formally experimental. Their works have been presented in major companies and major festivals all around the world to great acclaim. Emma, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thanks for having me. Now, to begin with, just for our listeners, I just wanted to ask some questions about the kind of work that you make, the work that you do with the Rabble and um, outside of the Rabble. What kind of draws you to the works that you make? What are the kind of questions or um, investigations that lead you to the work that you've made? I think there's sort of two founding principles of the Rabble, and one is um, the work should be feminist, and we're very like open about what that word might mean and that it should be experimental as well. So these two things are really a description of content and form and a a desire to be challenged um, in both arenas. So I'm interested in being made uncomfortable by the content that I produce. Um, I want to be asking myself difficult questions as well as the audience difficult questions. And I also want to be challenged by form. I want to try and invent something I haven't seen before. I want to show an audience a new way of doing things. So yeah, so they're the kind of principles of the work I make. And what's usually your starting point? Like when you're, like, because I know a lot of the works that you've made have been classical works or classical myths or classical stories, often reframed through feminist or female perspective. What's the starting point for you with choosing a work or choosing something that you want to look at? I think it could be one of two things. It can either be a ongoing discussion between Kate and I, um, probably a thematic discussion. Um, So we uh, might be interested in doing something about fertility or or motherhood or something like that, and then we'll we'll go and look for a text, which is how we came to do um, our production of Frankenstein. We were really uh, looking for a text that would open out into those kind of thematics. Or it can be like a general obsession with a text in the first place, which is the reason why we did Orlando and Story of O, which are like very 
important seminal texts um, for me as a, a reader and a and a thinker. Um, so it can be one of one of those two places. And what do you think is the relationship between the adapter and the original work? Like, what are the things that you weigh in on when you're in the process of adaptation? If anyone's ever seen the Rebels' work, you'll know that we uh, do very very free adaptations that often um, deviate from the plot or or change it completely, or in some cases is it becomes barely recognisable. What's important to me is to uh, honour the kind of essence of a text and uh, really just sort of pick out things that are important in both the content and the form. So if you um, look at a work like Frankenstein, for instance, it is almost a carbon copy of the original book in terms of form, you know, flipping perspectives between the doctor and the monster, for instance, but we invented new characters, we um, changed the ending, <laughs> um, we put Britney Spears in there, like, uh, the you know, the, the actual plot mechanics are, are less important. Um, but you know, I, I did a lot of research around um, Mary Shelley's life and her um, relationship with fertility and uh, she'd had several children die. Um, she'd had a miscarriage as well. And uh, then she writes this this piece about uh, manufacturing human life. And I, I was really interested in, in that kind of fact and wanted to honour that and also the, the kind of important place, the Gothic plays in, in the novel and the kind of context around the novel. So that's some examples, I guess. Adaptation is such an important question around the Disney films, particularly because the adaptations that the Disney animated classics have given us are now, for most people, the foundation point of their understanding of those original texts. So yeah, I wanted to just kind of ask about that to kind of get that in the head um, of our listeners, because that may be something that we talk about with this particular film. To segue into talking about Disney films, do you remember what the first Disney film was that you saw? I was thinking about this today. It uh, it definitely wasn't Snow White. I think that it was um, Fantasia. I had a very strained relationship with um, television and film as a child. I wasn't allowed to watch very much of it um, and wasn't exposed to uh, the kind of plethora of Disney films available until much later, actually. Um, but I definitely remember being allowed to watch Fantasia at someone's house and it it kind of blowing my mind and and I I think if if anyone's ever seen a rabble show they can maybe see some elements of that film um, in our shows <laughs> the kind of surrealist aspect why do you think it that was the one that you were allowed to watch I think it was um, happenstance I think it, I maybe accidentally saw it as a at a friend's house or something and maybe this is not true and maybe it was just the most memorable film of the ones that I um, got to see at I think the kind of magic of it and surrealism of it really stuck with me. I mean, if you're going to start with any Disney film, Fantasia is probably the best place to start because it's probably one of the of the best. Um, it's one of one of my absolute favorites. That one. Well, then, what was your relate when you said late that later in your life you were exposed to the Disney animated films? When was that, and in what way was that? And then, how's what's been your relationship with them since? I remember watching The Lion King a lot in my 20s. Really? Yes. And I, I have no answer for that. Um, I really liked the soundtrack, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and it just brought me a lot of comfort. Yeah, I've no, I can't, I have no insights into why why that happened. And more recently, I have, um, I'm an auntie to uh, an awesome eight-year-old. Um, and she loves Frozen. So I have, I've watched both the Frozen films uh, more than once. So you've let it go many times. <laughs> I have let it go. I, I feel very fondly towards those films, um, maybe particularly because of my relationship with my niece more than anything. It is the lovely thing about these films is that there are the kind of two relationships you have with them. The relationship you have with them when you're a child, which often is just whether or not you find them entertaining or enjoyable or comforting. And then there is the relationship you have with them as an adult where you either discover them again yourself or most of the time seeing them through the eyes of, of younger kids. Like I remember when 
I come from quite a big family and there's quite a large spread in my family um, of ages. And I remember the joy I had as a teenager or at my early 20s showing my very young siblings all of the Disney films that I still loved from when I was a kid. The relationship we have with them is quite complex. Apart from Fantasia having an influence on some of the work that you've done with The Rabble, um, has Disney films been prevalent in any of your in your work or in your mind when you've been creating work in any other ways? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a terrible answer for this podcast. No, it's not, not at all, not at all. Can't expect everybody to say yes to that question. <laughs> it hasn't, but I, um, I think it's interesting to... I've I've thought about um, I guess fairy stories a lot in in my time and I often use them as a a teaching tool um, for adaptation. Um, I think a lot of people do, and I often use them use a lot of thinking around feminism and and fairy tales and and the way we um, have been our imaginations have been educated um, right from a very young age, and I do think um, watching Snow White. Um, and then thinking about, you know, Frozen 2 and um, I think there's a, just a huge journey that's uh, been taken in regards to the way uh, women are, are represented in the films um, but but also the uh, plot devices in general and the, um, uh, the complexities of the stories in general as well. Well, shall we start talking our way through Snow White and the Seven Dwarves then? Sure. One evening in 1934, Walt Disney gave each of the staff at the Hyperion Avenue Studios 65 cents and sent them off to dinner, asking them to come back afterwards. When they returned, they found Disney alone in a screening room. He sat them down in a circle and over the next four hours performed for them the plot of a classic fairy tale, the heroine and her true love, her companions and her mortal enemy. Those there would talk about the night for the rest of their lives, the night Walt Disney pitched them his most ambitious idea yet, something that had never been attempted before, not to turn this fairy tale into another short subject, but a proper full-length animated film. Snow White, voiced by Adriana Casalotti, lives in a castle with her wicked stepmother the Queen, Lucille Laverne, forced to work as a maid. When the Queen's magic mirror tells her that it is Snow White, not her, that is the fairest in the land, she orders a woodsman to take her to the woods and kill her. He can't bring himself to do it though, and Snow White escapes into the woods, stumbling upon a little house occupied by seven dwarves, all miners for precious jewels. Doc, happy, bashful, grumpy, sneezy, sleepy, and dopey. They take her in to live with them, while she cooks for them and teaches them to take better care of themselves. But when the Queen discovers from her magic mirror that Snow White is still alive, she turns herself into a crone, tracks down Snow White and convinces her to eat a poison apple, putting her into a death-like sleep. The dwarfs chase the Queen, who falls from a cliff and dies. Believing Snow White to be dead, they put her in a glass coffin, but when a prince passes by, he kisses Snow White and she awakes, and in true fairy tale fashion, they all live happily ever after. At 83 minutes long, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is the first fully animated feature-length film ever made. While animated shorts had become a standard feature of most theatrical presentations, it was thought that audiences would not accept any of a considerable length, or accept the idea of a cartoon character in any sense of danger or peril. As popular as these shorts were, and despite the efforts of animators around the world, animation was not yet taken seriously as a legitimate art form by the general public. The story of Snow White first appeared in print in 1812 as part of Grimm's Fairy Tales, a collection of European folk tales set down by brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. In 1916, a young Walt Disney saw a silent film adaptation and had always thought it a perfect story. When Disney proposed it as a subject for a feature, his brother and business partner Roy and his wife Lillian were sceptical, concerned that the project would ultimately be a flop. Roy eventually relented and sought funding from Bank of America, who trepidatiously granted them the loan. The budget was set at $250,000. As soon as it was announced, the press dubbed it Disney's Folly, and the staff, led by supervising director David Hand, began the uphill battle to get the film made. When story development began in August 1934, emphasis was placed on the dwarves rather than Snow White. It was thought that there would be a greater attraction for the audience, but Disney became concerned that the focus on the comic characters and comic situations would impact on the believability for the audience. Instead, 
the focus shifted to Snow White herself as the protagonist, and a very different kind of film began to take shape. It has since become folklore around the film that Disney became fixated on one particular challenge. They had used animation to make an audience laugh, but could they make an audience cry? So, Emma, what was the first time you remember seeing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Well, as uh, I, I would have guessed and said, I saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarves somewhere um, between the ages of seven and ten. But uh, I watched the film and thought to myself, I have never seen this film before. Really? Yes. I've seen clips of it. There's a lot that is familiar to me. I've obviously watched television shows about the movie. There were some scenes that I had absolutely 100% never seen before, um, even though the images from it are uh, so uh, ingrained into my psyche and, and they they live in the cultural world that I think about um, very vividly. So what was your first impression of it then, seeing it for the first time? I was so impressed with the quality of the film. I think it's such a beautiful film. I think the quality of the animation um, is incredible if you think about when it was made and I can see why it nearly sort of killed the Disney staff to to make. (laughs) I think it goes without saying almost that it is a product of its time in terms of its politic Um, and there's no there's no avoiding that fact. Uh, it definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Snow White uh, is definitely uh, doing all the cooking and cleaning for the dwarves uh, so she can stay in their house. Not even that she's doing it in order to, like, she's not even that she's being nice. She's using it as actual collateral in order to have a safe place to sleep. That really struck me rewatching it again this afternoon of just, that is her purpose and role in order to uh, achieve safety in this world. Yes, and it's all that she knows how to do, essentially. That's that's the action that we see her doing um, at the start of the film and then in the middle of the film in the sequence you're talking about. Um, she has just afforded no other kind of active action, really. And, you know, Grumpy does, like, utter the phrase, uh, women. (laughs) (laughs) About 20 times in various ways. I think he talks about their wiles or something. (laughs) Yes, there's a point where he's like, sure, they're working, but what do they mean? Like, every single single thing about her that makes, like, her femininity is suspect to him. Yes, yes. Um, So, these are... Uh, the facts of the film, um, and there's no there's no getting around them. So I I just wanted to sort of say that up front. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but it's just like a, an undeniable uh, circumstance of the time, I guess. Because of the kind of work that you make, it was one of the reasons why I was really intrigued to hear your response to the film because it is a question that comes up with looking at these films. There aren't that many Disney princess films in Walt Disney's lifetime. I think I counted there's only about four. And yes, they're a product of our time, but there is also the question of what do we do with them now? Like, yes, we can kind of accept it's 1937. Of course, this is the way that they position Snow White, but kind of to interrogate what exactly is that position and then how do we respond to it and talk about it and where does it fit now? You know, it is kind of one, it is a film that is undeniably visually beautiful and it's still every time I watch it, it still kind of surprises me at the sophistication of its cinema, of the, the cinematic language in it. Like you can see the influence of German expressionism and you can see the influence of like the early great silent films from like you know, Hollywood silent films in it and the way that they're telling the story. But the, the, the more complex question is how does it position Snow White as, as the protagonist? What is her journey through the film and what does it leave us with now? Yeah. I've been th- thinking about this a lot, and I think it's interesting to uh, to look at the original Grimm's tale and think about. I mean, her position was not much better in that tale, but she and the Queen had a lot more to to do with each other, which I do think is interesting in in terms of uh, a, a story with tension or something. Apart from when she's the crone at the end, there's only one shot in the film where they're ever in the same, like they're ever 
scene in a like sing in a singular shot, which is that amazing one of where it pans up from her watching the prince on the balcony to the queen looking through the window. Other than that, that's the only moment where the two are connected in any way. Um, they're completely separated in the film, which yeah does doesn't give the tension of their like in the same way that Cinderella has a very clear tension with her stepmother in the film. There isn't really that in 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 this film. No, Snow White is completely passive and accepting of her her situation. Um, she she accepts that she is sort of um, banished, uh, or she's you know her stepmother wanted to kill her, and uh, the the hunter couldn't go through with it, so she's she sort of banished from from the kingdom and has to hide and finds this place of refuge and it's like she won't find me here it's fine so she's given uh sort of no real drive uh at all through the piece um no character development at all and in the end she the, the only thing she really does is make a mistake by accepting an apple um, from the crone, which sort of half kills her, and then she she lies passively waiting uh, to be rescued uh, by the prince. Uh, so there's sort of there's very little we can do with that fact. The queen, I think, is a bit more interesting. Um, she does uh, do things. She does quite a few things, and the she's given this drive, which is. Um, interestingly vanity and I think the thematic of of vanity um is uh, an interesting lens to uh watch the film through I think that was again something that struck me watching it again today was the fact of the degree to which the queen is willing to protect her own vanity and like you know protect her narcissism is to actually destroy her own looks in order to do it like she's willing to go to the extreme of I will I will destroy everything about myself that I'm trying to preserve in order to regain my position as, in, in quote a commas, the, the fairest of them all. Talking about um, Snow White's passiveness in the film, it kind of means, like, even though she's the protagonist, it seems like the film is much more interested in giving thematic character arcs and thematic character development to everybody else other than her. Yeah, absolutely. I think Snow White is the object in the film that everyone else relates to. Um, that the dwarves relate to, that the hunter relates to, that the prince relates to, and and obviously the queen relates to. But she she doesn't give much back. While the dwarves, with their exaggerated movements and features, were easier to animate, creating believable and realistic human figures was much more difficult. And Disney knew that the success of the film rested on whether the audience would connect with Snow White herself. As with the multiplane camera, Disney decided to use the Silly Symphonies as a testing ground. He ordered into production a short called The Goddess of Spring, based on the Greek myth of Persephone, and the aim was to have Persephone depicted as close to reality as possible. Animator Hamilton Lusk was tasked with animating Persephone, but despite the efforts of Lusk and fellow animator Dick Humer, who animated Mephistopheles, the effort was considered a failure. Lusk was then placed in charge of animating Snow White, where he used his failure on The Goddess of Spring to inform his new process. Extensive live-action reference was shot, with Snow White performed by dancer Marge Belcher, who would later be better known as the famous dancer Marge Champion. This reference footage could be used to break down natural movement frame by frame, or as the basis for rotoscoping, where the animators trace the live-action footage for the animation. This helped to make the movement of both Snow White and the Queen a success, but the prince still proved difficult, and his role in the film was drastically minimised as a result. Another contribution to developing Snow White was made by the women in the inking and painting department. They suggested to Disney that Snow White should have a touch of red rouge on her cheeks. But Disney rejected this, saying it would be impossible for this to be consistent in every frame of the film. The ink and paint artist said not to worry, that they knew exactly how to do it because they did it to themselves every day and proved Disney wrong. I think in terms of uh, vanity is a very gendered kind of idea I think um I don't think we would get a a king who is worried about a, a better looking prince um but but jealousy isn't you know jealousy is a, a motivation that we see across genders uh so I think and it's a very 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 strong motivator in many of these kind of stories jealousy is not always seen as a negative um, motivation, while vanity often is, particularly because it's so, it, it, in the way that it's gendered. It often, you know, the the vain female character is often the villain. 
within a narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think inescapably the villain or um, at least an unlikable character. Um, and I think, I mean, it's so interesting what role the mirror plays in, in this piece, uh, particularly as a visual motif um, and that we we get all of these uh, reflections throughout the film and w- which starts with the mirror but uh, there's uh, a lot of water in the film um, and a lot of um, and then we get the um, beautiful uh, wishing well sequence which is uh, in direct parallel uh, with the mirror um, with Snow, Snow White sort of looking through the wishing well and the, the cameras uh, shooting up at her through the water. So beautiful and is a, it's, it's essentially a kind of soft focus lens and uh, is exemplifying her, her beauty, I guess, in some way. Um, and then we later get the washing sequence or the cleaning sequence with the dwarves, which has a lot of um, visual reflection in it. Um, that is mirrored visually uh, with the, the the witch's spell with the bubbles. And so there's, uh, I guess, all this uh, visual information that's asking us to uh, compare the Queen and Snow White. Um, and, I, and also I feel like we're being asked to say the Queen's got no chance of being the fairest. Well, I mean, the difference between the two reflections is that when the Queen looks in a mirror, she sees this disembodied male face that tells her whether she's beautiful or not when snow white looks into the in the wishing well she sees herself she doesn't need she has the confidence in herself of knowing that she's happy with who she is that she doesn't need someone else telling her while the the queen needs this male voice to to validate her existence to tell her you have worth um you have worth compared to other women you sit higher or sit lower than other women um, it doesn't tell her what to do. It doesn't tell her how to feel about it. It purely says, this is your ranking. Yeah. I hadn't, I actually hadn't even considered that as like the, the, the gender difference in the way that reflections work in the film. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and I think it also, um, speaks to, there's another kind of parallel about motherhood, um, and about a good mother versus a, a bad mother. Um, and the, there's this uh, a kind of similar implication there um, that the queen is uh, a, a bad mother, a stepmother, no less. Um, and Snow White gets, gets put in a, a maternal role with the, the dwarves and she is um, demonstrating what, what a good mother might be. It's so prevalent over the Disney, particularly the films from Walt's lifetime. I mean, you've got the relationship between Dumbo and his mother and them being estranged. You have um, the um, Bambi's mother's death. Um, so many of the of the characters in the Disney animated films are orphans that are either removed from their parents or their parents die in the process of the film. Um, I mean, in Peter Pan, there is exactly the same conversation that Wendy presents herself as an alternate mother to the lost boys and she they, they don't know what that means, but they're like, oh, no, you're here in this in this you know ramshackle building we've built for ourselves you have to be our mother now kind of in a similar way to the way that snow white has to i find it so interesting that that's the first thing that snow white chooses to present herself as she goes i will be their mother like i won't it's not that i will live with them it's not that i will be romantically involved with them it's not even that like you know it's 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 the thing of i will position myself as the caregiver to all of these little men that don't seem to be able to take care of themselves yeah and it um it oddly disempowers her and it disempowers the dwarves. Um, it completely infantilizes them and they are removed as a possibility for um, as romantic leads uh, and it also removes any drive they might have in terms of um, jealousy or desire because um, she's put in this very this virtuous mother role. Immediately, before there's even, um, before the dwarves are even there. Yeah, she, all, she, all she knows is that they're little people that are not good with cobwebs, so I must do, my, I, I must fulfil this position. Why do you think the film does that? It's, you know, 1937, there's very particular sets of morals and understanding about gender politics. And also it should be noted this is a film made by men. Like this is a film with, you know, a, a man leading the creative charge in Disney. It's 
entirely animated by men. The entire story team is men. Um, that's the norm in this period, but this is a story about a female protagonist. And actually the only story of, of the first five Disney animated films, the only one with a female protagonist. All of the other protagonists are male. So, yeah, why do you think the story is positioning her in, in this way? Why, why is that the, the, the route they, they could be deciding to take? I think when you're um, talking about fairy tales, you're often talking about good and evil. Uh, you're talking about very recognisable good and very recognisable evil. And um, motherhood often symbolises this when you're talking about women. If you're a good mother, then you must be a good character. If you're a bad mother, you must be a bad character. So I feel like the um, positioning Snow White as this good mother it enforces that she's the good character. Um, it also amplifies her virginity or her virtuousness by giving her a recognisable pos position in a house full of seven men. I think these are, are probably ingrained, these ideas are probably ingrained in, in the minds of the men who, who made them. And almost an idealism. I mean, the way, the thing that's so... I find so fascinating about the way that Snow White is visually represented in the film is that all the other characters, except maybe the the the, um, the exception of the prince, who is a, a, even the most non-existent character in the film, and like not just in terms of his action, but just visually almost non-existent. Everyone else has m moves in a way that is grounded in a sense of reality. But when Snow White moves through a frame, her arms and her body move in kind of the way you would expect a female romantic character in a silent film to move. But this is 10 years after sound has been invented. We know that you don't, like, phys physically you don't have to overemphasize those attributes in order to communicate to an audience who, you know, who aren't going to be able to hear anything. But she still does that. Like, she's, she seems to be the overwhelming representation of innocence and virginity and purity to the point of it being kind of theatrical, certainly by comparison to the way everyone else is represented in the film. Absolutely. And she's also being followed around by these, um, all these animals who are all in um, family sets and we keep cutting to them um, being uh, maternal with each other. <laughs> uh, so there's, uh, I mean, it's not to gender the animals and it is hard to tell, but it, there is a feeling that um, all the sets are mother and children um, and they are uh, looking after, all the mothers are looking after the children in the, in the way that um, Snow White ends up looking after the dwarves and uh, sort of um, amplification to the extreme. Like there's so many animals telling us that she, she is an innocent. All doing exactly the same thing that she is. Like my favourite sequence in the whole film, the one that I just absolutely adore, is um, the whistle while you work sequence where the animals are cleaning up the house with Snow White. It's just I love every single beautiful comic beat of it. But that is the animals who we understand as innocents because that's the way that we're, we're, we're kind of culturally you know, wired to think about animals, all doing the same activities that Snow White is doing. So it's kind of like even linking her further towards this idea of being, you know, she's so gentle and so lovely that the animals love her, um, that they're willing to help her, but that the actions that they are um, they are completing are similar actions to hers, thus they are within the same kind of level of innocence and um, goodness. Yeah, and I don't know how long that sequence is exactly, but it feels very long. It feels like a an enormous part of the action of the film. That and the the washing sequence uh, feel overly long. Uh, they they almost don't outstay their welcome in in a way. Um, and I don't think that the uh, the the pace would stand up to uh, most watchers today who are used to um, cuts being a bit faster. There's big, big chunks of the film that are that are dedicated to cleaning and washing. What, either one's home or oneself? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's probably, a lot of that probably has to do with, I mean, because, you know, as much as it's an ridiculously impressive that they were able to take an art form that was usually only eight minutes long and take it to nearly 90 minutes long, you can see it that the the fact that there are so many extended gag sequences and that was a big thing for Disney of like, there was this story that he would pay animators or story um the story development staff, $5 a gag. And there's this great story that after hours, he would sneak back into the studio and go through all the waste paper baskets of the animators to see what animation ideas they'd thrown away. And if you found anything you liked, he'd pin them up on a board and have a note saying, 
this is good, do this. So gags are such a big deal in this film, but they're used to only telling a story in an eight-minute chunk, if that. And so now they've got to do it over an hour and a half. And the easiest way, and Snow White is not the most, uh, not a particularly dense story to begin with in its original form. So you can definitely feel that even though everything in the film is really charming and quite beautiful, it's kind of spinning its wheels a little bit in order to fill time, in order to justify itself, its length as a feature-length film, which possibly is another reason why the characters don't, apart from the dwarves, where you see you get the sense there's a lot of work that's been done in the development of the dwarves. It's why it not, doesn't feel like there's been a lot of time and efforts put into considering Snow White's character arc. Or even like, what is the, if the prince could possibly, if the prince could be better animated, but if the prince could possibly have, a, have an arc. So that's possibly another reason of why there are these lovely sequences that would be separate, great on their own, but feel really like they, they drag the rhythm of the film down a bit. And certainly by comparison to what Pinocchio, which is the next film, is kind of a perfectly executed, constructed narrative. Yeah, it's felt to me, um, I've done a very small amount of animation in my time and it uh, felt to me that uh, a lot of the sequences were based on what would be cool to animate and also the score. So it feels to me like they are um, animating to a score that is uh, probably pre, pre-written and also that they're... Uh, when they storyboarded, they uh, really wanted an extended sequence of of the dwarves washing because um, soap and bubbles are really fun and getting dopey to swallow the soap is fun and uh, <laughs> and them all being sort of dripping wet is fun um, from an animation level and the cleaning sequence feels the same. That the, What can we get the animals to do? How can they clean? Isn't it great that the squirrels can use their tails? It all, it all feels um, like it's it was a wouldn't it be cool um, discussion as opposed to what is, what is the narrative drive for Snow White? There were originally two extra sequences planned. One was the dwarves. So at the moment where the dwarves realised that Snow White doesn't have a bed to sleep in before they just offer it to her, there was originally a sequence where they were going to build her a bed um which they cut in storyboard at the storyboard stage but there was another sequence which was them eating dinner and like drinking the soup and that actually got to the point where the animation like the like the the hand before it went into inking and painting the animation was complete so there's actually a complete deleted active deleted scene to this film that would have made it another five minutes longer and again the fact that, you know, these are films that were made to be originally seven, eight minutes long and now they're pushing an hour and a half. Like I, I, like you said, I completely, you completely get why everyone nearly lost their minds making this thing. And also they would have lost their minds, you know, completing this huge sequence and then Disney coming in and being like, no, we're just, we're just going to cut that. Apparently the staff were pretty pissed at him over that one. Uh, I bet. But I, mean, I think it was the right decision because that would make that centre building block of, of the film um, so long. There, It's, you know, from when Snow White arrives at the house to when the witch comes, which is actually the kind of next bit of narrative. It's, it's maybe half an hour. I don't know. That's my guess. It's actually closer to an hour. Wow. Because I, I, I paused it today because I had to go to bring some washing in. And it was the point where she was just about to start singing Someday My Prince Will Come. And it was 59 minutes. And I remember actually looking at it and going, oh, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel like that's that's how long it should have been. But yeah, it's 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 a huge, not just from like a technical level, but from a storytelling level, you can definitely feel that they've been pushed to the edges of what they can do with, the, with their craft, but also what they can do with the story that they're telling. I think it's really interesting that, um, so in the original story, uh, there's a pretty classic repeat where the witch comes to Snow White three times. Um, the first, uh, she convinces her to buy some ribbon for a bodice um, that she then tightens and um, Snow White faints, uh, but she doesn't kill her. And the second is a comb, a poison comb, that also doesn't work, and the third is the apple. So there's this other narrative structure that was um, in in the original text that they've rejected, which is um, a lot more Snow White and stepmother or, or crone interaction and a lot less dwarves. Which is probably a reason for wanting to not go with the three encounters because, I mean, it would mean that the one thing they know the audience is like is gags with funny characters. And so as much as, you know, they do want to 
you know, in the early development wanting to shift towards Snow White to be more of the protagonist, you can still see the the leftovers of that thing of, well, we have to make it funny because that's what's going to keep the audience engaged. Um, that's what they expect. There's, there's, there's a great push and pull in this film of what it is that we want to do and what is that ex- what is expected of us to do. And if you can see the film kind of, you know, the, the opening sequence of the film is so incredibly arresting, as is the ending. But in the middle, there's basically a series of silly symphony shorts with a bunch of funny characters doing funny gags. Well, uh, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, Dwarf Land was moved to Hollywood. Down at the corner of Wilshire Boulevard, just outside the Carthay Circle Theatre, Walt Disney built a replica of the Dwarf's Cottage that appears in this picture, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The main campus for Walt Disney Productions was at a studio on Hyperion Avenue in Los Angeles, bought by the Disney Brothers in 1926. This site included all the necessary departments, including animation, inking and painting, and camera. At the height of production on Snow White, there were over 600 staff at the Hyperion studio, often working 12 hours a day. The campus was set up as both a work and a social space, with facilities for food, sports and education. Walt Disney provided drawing classes and lectures from experts in art and art history in order to support the education of his animators, as well as screenings of current and respected films to study cinematic techniques. These opportunities were extended considerably during the making of Snow White to include live-action study of animals, actors, and the natural world in order to achieve greater realism. All the animation staff were men, as it was believed women would be too much of a distraction for the male animators. Women worked exclusively in the inking and painting department for significantly lower wages. They were not allowed in the animation building, and men were likewise not allowed in the inking and painting building. Even with the long hours and enormous demands from Disney himself, the work provided employment and a steady income for the staff at the Walt Disney Productions during the Great Depression and in the years of recovery following. Another question I wanted to ask you, because your work is so visually exciting, I wanted to kind of ask you about how you felt about the visual storytelling in Snow White, because that's one thing that is very, um, very prevalent in the early Disney films that you could almost take a lot of the dialogue out of these films and they could, they could still function. Certainly you can definitely do that with, with Dumbo um, and Bambi. They edge towards that and Fantasia, obviously because it has no dialogue and in some cases, no narrative. How did you find the visual storytelling in Snow White? Uh, I thought um, there was just some impeccable, moments really uh in terms of um the sequence where where snow white is running through the forest and um it's it's coming alive everything has eyes um and she's she does a little bit of an alice in wonderland sort of fall through vines um which just uh i think i would have been quite frightened of that as as a child i think it's uh very good at um, showing Snow White's internal state. But I think the one of the most beautiful moments of storytelling, uh, visual storytelling in the piece is the witch's death where she is um, hit, as she falls off a cliff, the boulder falls down afterwards and then just to like really sew, sew it in, <laughs> um, there's this shot of you don't see the witch flattened by the boulder, which, you know, um, maybe you would have in in later films um but you just see these two vultures um just take off and start circling and then we just like go to a a blur out and it's so beautiful it's something that you would dream of doing in the theater or just two vultures (laughs) taking off and starting to circle um representing someone dying and it's like the air of the film is kind of sucked out at that moment like it's it's not even that it's the sound fades away the score is gone it's mostly just the shot this very like this held shot of these two vultures spinning down it's almost like it's one of the beautiful things of like showing you don't need to see what has happened to the witch you don't need to see the body crushed under the boulder the the glee on the vultures faces is almost is is far more powerful and much more visceral and it's also, I did find it, that whole section of her, when the vultures follow her, she's they follow her from when she's on her way to the dwarves, that there's this ever-present um, symbol of death following the witch, following the queen. Not Snow White, but following the queen. What did you make of that? 
because I, I, I sat there look, thinking like, what's going on with that? Like, what what is the film trying to say? What is the film? Um, I mean, it's obviously telling us that she's probably going to die, but what is what what's the reason for elongating that? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what uh, we we read those symbols so so quickly these days. Um, and there's a, a skull in her workshop. There's also a raven in her workshop. Um, so there's these uh, these symbols of of death sort of all ar- around her. Um, and she uh, she ages herself as well, um, and and makes herself sort of closer to death in some way. And then makes this this object of death, which is an apple, which is like clearly. Uh, you know, we read as as temptation of, of some kind, but it feels like it is. It's not necessarily Snow White's temptation, but the witch's temptation, or something that she she is the maker of her own end. Um, and we we're getting all these clues um, that she can't see, but that we can see very clearly that she will be the maker of her own. And? She's the one driving the conflict between her and Snow White because Snow White is completely passive and almost unawares of the fact that she has a conflict with her stepmother. Um, certainly, not uh, no idea why. And so it's the witch that at every step of the way is creating the level of conflict and what how that conflict will manifest itself and how it will resolve itself. Yeah, Snow White, <laughs> Snow White doesn't care, um, and and doesn't she never articulates um, knowing uh, why. Uh, the the queen um, might have a beef with her. She completely underestimates her. She's like, oh no, she'll never. F-. The dwarves like, she might find. You. She's like, oh no, she'll never find me here. It's like, I don't really know your stepmother very well. If that's if the the, the dwarves are pretty convinced you're in danger. I think it's interesting that um, in the um, in the original story, uh, the queen uh, dies of jealousy. She um, sees Snow White and Prince Charming be married. And she just loses her breath, and it uh, in the uh, story it um, is so quick. Uh, it's uh, just there's no run up to the queen's death. Uh, it's almost immediate, um, and you can see how that's not very dramatic for an animated film. But I think thematically, it's it's interesting uh, that she really is the the maker of her own demise. She seeks out to you know go and go and see this marriage she doesn't need to um and it it kills her to jump back to um the previous sequence we were also talking about with snow white running through the woods because one another thing that struck me in revisiting the film is that the way that all of those moments happen is that snow white sees an, a natural phenomenon a tree trunk in the water or leaves um on a branch and then it manifests itself into a living thing, a living thing that is a threat to her. I guess the question is, is that a sequence that is as much about the psychology of her state of mind at the time? Is it a psychological or literal um, sequence, I guess, is my question. I think it's definitely a psychological sequence. Uh, She has just been, um, like, the threat of the knife from the hunter and and that kind of shock is, I think, um, would have been very... Um, scary for an audience, um, particularly if they did they didn't know what kind of film they were watching yet. <laughs> and uh, then she does this uh, run away from him that is uh, this flourish, um, this kind of silent film movement that you were talking about before. So already we're uh, we sort of understand her melodrama and her fear. And I think the, I mean, the dark woods is so often used as a metaphorical or imaginative space, psychological space um, in these kind of fairy tales, uh, the place of danger, the place of threat, the place where you're, uh, uh, you could lose your virtue, uh, the place where you could encounter evil. Um, and I think it's, uh, we're meant to read it as uh Snow White suddenly seeing for the first time um, the the evils in the world, uh, and uh, which is very quickly followed by her by that group of animals turning up <laughs> and uh, reminding her that all is all is well that the world is in order and and that she is still innocent. Yes, you realise that the you know the eyes the the evil eyes staring at her from the tree trunks are actually a myriad of chipmunks. 
Oh, I do kind of want to bring up the subject of fairy tales because it is something that is, you know, you, you mentioned that's something that you think about quite a bit with your work and certainly as a teaching tool. What the relationship is, we ha- our relationship with fairy tales now as defined by Disney films, how much have has a film like Snow White affected our relationship with these stories and their intentions? I think these are formative cultural experiences that we have are so incredibly important and we can uh, see the um, damage or the opposite of damage, uh, (laughs) joy that they bring um, all the time. Uh, I think that, you know, the way we tell ourselves stories, particularly about um, what is right and what is wrong um, and uh, how the world should be and what is the correct and natural order of the world, are so incredibly important and they can can really have a lasting effect. And, and most of my thinking has been around the way that that has affected our relationship with gender. And I think that those examples are, are very obvious, particularly in, in these um, early films. And I think a, a young girl sort of watching Snow White uh, would see two options um, for her, uh, that either a, a, a passive, romantic, uh, young, beautiful figure, um, or a, a embittered, evil, uh, older figure, um, and nothing in between. And I think when kids start watching these films, that they that they're starting to model themselves, they're starting to develop personalities. So I, I think. Uh, their role is really important. Where do you think a film like Snow White can fit now? Like I've had many conversations with people around these films and that is the very concern they bring up of what is it teaching young you know, young women um, about where they are supposed to fit in the world? Because they are this, that like on one, on one side they are beautifully digestible, incredibly entertaining, visually exciting, often quite funny films that when you're a child provide tremendous amounts of entertainment. But they are kind of, they're dealing with particularly a film like Snow White, which is dealing with the fairy tale, which is like a formative cultural foundation. It's delivering something kind of primal to us. How do you, th- what, what can our relationship with a film like Snow White be now? And when, if we are showing a film like this to, you know, young girls, what are the conversations we need to have around it? When I'm talking to university students about these, these matters, I'm using them as uh tool to understand the problems um and i think in a film like snow white the problems are are pretty obvious actually you don't have to do a a, a kind of complex cultural reading on on the film to understand uh the inherent misogyny in it um and maybe it can be a tool to to talk about what people used to think or the way things used to be and, and how they've changed or the way some people think or um, options, I guess, in terms of, um, you know, this is one character, what are the other options? You know, what do we have to choose from? You know, and we, we haven't even touched on, you know, the role of the the, the dwarves in all of this and the kind of inherent ableism in it and, and the way that they're infantilized and, and also the fact that there are seven men living together um, and, and like the, the kind of uh, potential for a queer story there um, as, as well. Seven little men living in a house mining jewels. It's all, it's all there. Yeah. Um, with their beds all like smushed up together next to each other. So there's inventive ways to, to, to read these films as well or to think about, um, you know, p- potentials. You know, also Prince Charming looks like Snow White. Like he has the same facial features as her and, um, I, you know, is there some kind of like queering that can be done there as well? So there's there's always enough, um, particularly with these like very um, broad archetypal narratives, there's uh, often so little detail in them that we there's actually space for us to imagine into. And I think that has always been a very important part of um, feminist and queer history is is finding the spaces to uh, imagine into. Um, so I'm like, that's a fun option to, <laughs> as well. Snow White is one of the most 
uh, intriguing of the early Disney films because, you know, one question I asked myself watching it this afternoon was, what is it about? Like, what, like, if you had to kind of boil the film down to kind of a nice pithy statement of intention, you can do that with Pinocchio and you can do that with Fantasia and Dumbo and Bambi, but Snow White feels a little bit harder to do that with. And I think for that reason that you were saying that there's that there's there's less detail to hold on to with it, which does kind of invite, in a way that you know makes a th- if a classic is a definition of a th- of of a work that is continuously um, relevant or intriguing over many many decades or centuries, certainly qualifies for that because we can find our own modern readings of gender um, and gender politics in it now, which yeah I think I think makes it a, a, an intriguing an infinitely intriguing film. Um, one last question to finish up on Snow White, because you brought up at the beginning um, of our chat the fact that your niece loves Frozen, and so you've become very fond of Frozen, understandably, because it's a, it's a pretty good film. Um, but that's a Disney princess story. Like, we're talking, this is a Disney princess story from the 30s, and we're now talking of a Disney princess story in the early 21st century. And you mentioned the difference between the two of them. What has changed? What, what, are, what are the differences and similarities between Snow White um, and Elsa and Anna? Well, Elsa and Anna get to just do a bunch <laughs> of stuff. They really, um, they really do. Their primary relationship is with each other. Um, so uh, that's, that's a big difference. The secondary female character is not trying to kill the primary female character. Yes. Um, they instigate almost all of the action. They get to be decisive. And I think if you look at the the plot of those two films, they're, it's incredibly complex and there's just a lot more happens. There's, there's a lot more opportunity uh, for the central characters uh, to do a variety of things. Um, so Snow White doesn't do much or she does one thing maybe and most of the time she sort of sits docilely but it's it's not only the problem of the character it's a problem of the plot that the 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 plot doesn't drive forward in any way um whereas the the plot in in both the frozen films the predictable and and cliche in many ways um is like uh jam-packed with with all kinds of ideas and there's a lot of there's a lot of options for the characters. In terms of um, narrative action, it's the po- they're the complete polar opposite to Snow White. To the point where in Frozen, the one the one possible complaint you could throw at it is that there's almost too much narrative action in Frozen. While with Snow White, you kind of sit there wishing that there was more narrative action. How much of a difference do you think is the fact that there are female voices in the Frozen films, as in like creative female voices in them, as opposed to a film like Snow White? Uh, we just just have to assume that that's all the difference um, in, in terms of accurate representation and diverse representation. Yeah, I think that um, we can imagine that would make a huge difference. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves had its world premiere at the Carthay Circle Theatre in Los Angeles on December 21st, 1937. Its final budget was estimated at nearly $1.5 million, an enormous sum for a film in the 1930s, and six times higher than the original budget of $250,000. Disney had been forced to mortgage his house in order to finance the film, and when they had gone to Bank of America to increase the loan, Joseph Rosenberg, who handled their loan, demanded to see the work done in the film so far. The staff cobbled together an unfinished work print of the film, which Rosenberg watched in silence. Disney walked into his car, convinced he would not get the money he needed, until Rosenberg remarked as he was about to leave, that thing is going to make you a hat full of money. And now here's the the gentleman that I'm sure you all want to meet. It's Walt Disney, the creator of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And he's just arrived. Mr. Disney, will you come up, please? Well, I'm very happy about everything. Tell us a little bit about this picture, will you? Well, uh... It's been a lot of fun making it. We're very happy that it's being given this big premiere here tonight. and All these people are turning out to, to take a look at it, and I hope they're not too disappointed. Well, I'm sure they won't be. I've seen the picture, Walt, and you're to be congratulated. Now, can you tell us something about the, some of the characters in the picture, particularly uh, Snow White and possibly the Seven Dwarfs? What about them? Well, our favorites are the Little Dwarfs. There's seven of them. We've uh, got names for them all that sort of fit their personality such as uh, Doc, who's the pompous leader. And then there's uh, 
old uh, Happy, the uh, smiling little fellow. Yeah. And uh, Grumpy, the old sourpuss, the woman hater. Yeah. And I can't remember them all here tonight. I... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what little about... Dopey. Yeah, what about Dopey? Well, he's uh, he's sort of our pet, you know. We... Was that so? Yeah. Well, what are, uh, what are some of his uh, lines in the picture, some of his funny lines, for instance? Well, he hasn't any lines. He doesn't talk. Well, you don't, why, why not, uh, Walt? Well, I don't know. I guess he just never tried. <laughs> well, that's as good a reason as any. To the enormous relief of the studio and its founders, Disney's folly was met with overwhelming critical acclaim, including praise from filmmakers Sergei Eisenstein and Charlie Chaplin. After the premiere, one producer from a rival studio remarked, I could not help but feel that I was in the midst of motion picture history, and much to Disney's relief, many left in tears. By the time it had completed its international run, Snow White had grossed nearly $8 million at the box office, making it the most successful film ever made up until that point. It also generated enormous amounts of revenue from merchandising, including the first ever commercially released soundtrack for a film, and had an enormous cultural impact, even influencing future classics such as MGM's adaptation of The Wizard of Oz in 1939. Snow White returned to theatres in 1944 and once again did an impressive box office, raising much-needed revenue for the studio during the war. The film returned to theatres every seven to ten years until 1993, establishing the studio's future re-release pattern for all its classics until home video, and adjusted for inflation, is still one of the most successful films ever made. Well, to finish up on one last question, one question that I always ask the guests on this podcast at the end is, what is your favourite Disney film, if you have one? I think it would have to be um, some kind of weird tie between Alice in Wonderland, um, which is just one of my favourite stories ever, and I uh, identify with Alice's weird relationship to the world around her. Um and also the uh, sweetness and, I don't know, um, cheeriness of Mary Poppins. Um, <laughs> uh, I loved the songs uh, from Mary Poppins and I loved the magic. I guess the few films I was allowed to watch as a child, um, where I was always attracted to things that were magical. To kind of go back to Alice for a second, since you're someone who who loves the story, how do you feel about that as an adaptation? Like, where does the Disney adaptation of that sit with you? It does sort of honour the essence of the original story. Um, I get a bit of what I was talking about in the way the rabble thinks about adaptation. I think uh, any fans of the story are probably sad by by many of the details. Um, but I think it does manage to capture this kind of hallucinogenic a uh, weird world that like expands and shrinks and um, feels drug fueled and yeah. The, the reason I ask is Alice in Wonderland is one of my favorite books and I've watched so many terrible adaptations, film adaptations of that book and the Disney one is my favorite for that exact reason that like the the feeling that I get reading Carol's text is the same feeling I get when I watch the Disney animated version of it. So when you when you um said Alice, I was like, oh, I have to I have to ask about that one. Great. I mean, they're two of the absolute best films in the Disney canon. I mean, Mary Poppins isn't strictly a, a Disney animated film, but it is one we're going to talk about on this podcast because it is so important and has such a. It says so much about the way that the storytelling at Disney was going to shift um in the years afterwards because it was just so monumental and influential. I just want to mention that when I was looking for uh, the original story of Snow White, I um, was just looking for an audio book and there is an audio book read by Sharon Stone. No. And I just think everyone should know about it. I listened to the five-minute sample. I didn't buy it, but I just think people should know it exists in the world. What did it sound like? It sounded very sexual. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It sounded husky and sexual. And, you know, they, they get you to read those audiobooks so slowly that it just, like, she's just drawling along. There's so much space in between each word. She's got one of those voices that purrs. Like, just now, like, that's the, like, whenever I think about her voice, it's like, it's that, that kind of, that, it rumbles. Oh, 
I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know how I feel about listening to a Sharon Stone reading the story of Snow White in this slightly purring sexual manner. I don't really know how I feel about that, particularly after having watched the Disney one five times in a row. There's only one way to find out how you feel about it. Yes, and that is for me to now go off and spend the $12 or so to listen to the entirety of Sharon Stone reading me Snow White and the Seven Dwarves as I go to sleep tonight. Probably have terrible dreams and terrible nightmares. Emma, thank you so much for joining us in Ink and Paint and sharing your thoughts with us on Snow White. Um, it's been a real, real joy to chat with you about it. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Following the release of the film, Disney was hailed as a genius and a significant artistic figure. He received an honorary Masters of Arts from both Harvard and Yale, the latter naming him the creator of a new language of art. In 1938, Disney was awarded an honorary Oscar for his achievement with the film, but this wasn't the accolade he had hoped for. Disney was upset that Snow White hadn't been nominated as one of the 10 best pictures of that year, and feared that, despite the financial and artistic success, the film still wasn't seen as a legitimate cinematic work. This anti-establishment and anti-intellectualism would re-emerge in years to come. The phenomenal success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves firmly established Walt Disney and his studio as an artistic force to be reckoned with, and elevated the art of animation to new heights. Thanks to the film's financial success, debts on the studio could be paid, and further development of the facilities, including plans for a new purpose-built animation studio, could be put in place. Disney wasn't about to rest on his laurels, though, and work was begun on a slate of feature animated films, all of which would push the studio and the art form to the edge of its limits, put the company at enormous financial risk and result in some of the greatest films ever made. On the next episode of Ink and Paint... Of course, everyone thinks of Pinocchio as a story in which someone's nose gets uh, bigger when one lie. Um, and it, it was quite striking coming back to the to the film or coming to the film afresh and realizing, though central, uh, how how small a part um, of the of the overall narrative that is. I'll be joined by award-winning theatre director Sam Strong as we look at one of Disney Animation's most revered and beloved films, Pinocchio. Thanks again to Emma Valente for joining me on this episode. For more information on The Rabble, head to therabble.com.au or find the company on Twitter and Instagram at Rabble Theatre. You can also find more information on Emma at emmavalente.com. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at incompaint.com.au for more information about the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, including concept art, animation sketches, and information about the history of the film on home video. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Ink and Paint. Hit us up with your comments, questions, or even memories of your favourite Disney films, and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. You can email daniel at incompaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. We release new episodes every fortnight, so if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform, and don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Original music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Pirinakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, maketheswitch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm a much, I'm a very loud person. It's getting me in a lot of trouble with making this podcast that every time I get a, I do a little recording and they come back and the producer's like, Daniel, you're really peaking again. I'm like, oh, sorry.